Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Harriet Russell. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks, John. Excellent. And Phil Oakley, how are you, Phil? I'm all right, thanks. Excellent. So we're going to talk, uh, Phil, about some of the stuff that you've uh, you've uh, mentioned in your Alpha report, which I think we're going to send out tomorrow, uh, Friday, that is, which also coincides, interestingly, with some of the results that we've covered in the magazine this week. Uh, and Harriet, it's another retail week. It's another retail week, but also a healthcare week. And a healthcare week. Big, big mover on the markets yeah. this week. The biggest mover on the markets this week. Absolutely. BTG. But also, it's Black Friday. It's Black Friday. Which I think we briefly mentioned last week. It's, it's upon us. It is upon us. And, you know, traditionally, you know, predecessors of mine, including yourself, would have been very preoccupied with the Christmas trading period. And that has been completely changed by the arrival of Black Friday. Black Friday didn't exist when I covered retail. No. No. Uh, let's start with Black Friday. Okay. What the hell is this? this is, <laughs> is this another awful US import? Absolutely is. Yeah. Um, Phil is nodding vociferously <laughs> there. Uh, is it I mean, I guess the big question about Black Friday is: is why are we? Why are retailers doing it? Is it is it helpful for them or damaging for them? And I guess the answer is depends on who you are. Depends on who you are, but actually, I would argue these days they do it because they have to to not almost looks a bit churlish. Although we can get onto that in a sec, there is a backlash, in my opinion. Having said that, uh, I, I must point out that we have a Black Friday subscription. <laughs> <laughs> So we're just as bad. Uh, yeah, twenty percent off subs all weekend. There you go. Well, um, that's one of the best deals to do out with there. Me. <laughs> uh, but yes, anyway, uh, tell us about Black Friday and what it really means for the UK retail sector. Yeah, uh, obviously it is an American import. Thanksgiving is today, Thursday in the US. Um, shout out to all my US family while I'm here. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was originally designed because the US take Thanksgiving almost more seriously than they take Christmas, um, and for that reason, you get an extra day off work. Woohoo! Friday. Um, Do they get Christmas off as well? They do, but it's a lot more punitive. They they don't have a boxing day, really. So right. they literally get Christmas Day. And then some people have to go back to work the next day. Um, and same thing with... I think they get New Year's Day off as well. But my sister, who does work in New York, you know, she gets 10 days holiday a year. And she's at a pretty pretty senior level in a PR firm. So it's it's really quite a harsh system that they have out there. So... Because of that, you know, the extra day after Thanksgiving was a big deal because it basically gave you a four-day weekend. You have Thursday off as well, obviously. And on that Friday, people seemed to think that there was nothing better to do than get a crack on the Christmas shopping. So they would head out to the shops and it didn't take long for a lot of retailers to realise the value that this day had to the shopping calendar. So much so that it soon became the first day in the entire annual calendar that retailers would, quote, tip into the black and turn profitable. Um, hence the name. And, so. and, and this does tie into what, what we know about UK retailers, that, that, that actually most of their their profits are delivered over the Christmas period. Absolutely. It's peak. Um, it always has been. But the timing of quite when that started, I would say in this country, was actually pretty late. It wasn't definitely until the start of December, but even as close as up to two weeks before the big event. Now it starts earlier and earlier and earlier because one of the biggest reasons that the entire Black Friday phenomenon got imported in the first place is because of Amazon. It obviously was a US company partaking in this and realised its potential overseas if it just started offering the same things to its international customers, which it soon did. Lo and behold, Amazon sets the bar for most of what goes on in retail. And so other retail retailers in this country have 
little option but to follow suit yeah absolutely i mean amazon obviously has been as we have discussed many times in this podcast a very very challenging competitor for many uk retailers to deal with i'm sure it will do wonderfully out of black friday what about everyone else yeah i mean that this is the problem is of course amazon has arguably the logistics capability to cope with this sort of demand and there is a demand i have to say i mean that's the first caveat to put out there people who sort of scorn black friday and call it some sort of dreadful demonstration demonstration of materialism or whatever sorry to tell you folks but people buy into it in a big way um particularly in this kind of climate where you know budgets are under pressure and household incomes are under pressure so that's the first thing to say but you know, people like M&S particularly um, and other high street retailers simply don't have the logistics infrastructure to cope with that demand. Online. Online, absolutely. Because of course what happens here, and I've mentioned this in the sector focus this week, is that we don't get an extra day off work unless like some people I do know, take it as holiday. So the phenomenon Sorry, people take Black Friday as holiday. Yep. To go shopping. Yep. Yeah, sorry to break it to you, but that's how seriously some people take it. Um, so for us, the phenomenon has become largely digital. You know, the foot, I've put some interesting stats in there about how online sales do on Black Friday traditionally compared to footfall um, on the high street. And it's completely sort of converse um, state of affairs, unsurprisingly. Um, so, yeah, when we're talking about how retailers cope with the event, we are talking about how they cope with the online demand and fulfilling that demand. I mean, this, this suggests to me it's kind of exacerbating the trend for the strong to get stronger. It does, because ultimately what you're going back to is a discount war. Um, and so not only are you on the one hand quite operationally having to dem- you know, cope with this huge demand, you're then in a strictly financial sense having to decide where you're going to take that pain. Are you going to promote you know extensively in order to keep up with the competition and therefore you know significantly damage your margin or are you going to knock discount quite as aggressively to limit damage on margin but then perhaps not make it up in the volume one of the things that intrigued me about all, all the black friday things is does it actually increase the amount of sales that the retailers actually make or is it just spreading the peak Christmas selling season over a a longer period. So people will take advantage, if indeed they are taking advantage, of a perceived offer now and they buy it now instead of what they would have bought three weeks later. Absolutely. This is something I also address in the piece, which is what's now become known as drag forward, Um, which you're absolutely right. This is one of the other major problems with it, is that rather than the sort of rather idealistic hope that by starting Christmas shopping early, you suddenly extend this sort of surge in volume for eight weeks as opposed to four. All that happens is that purchasing decisions, A, get delayed in October. We saw that massively in the ONS stats that came out for last month. You see this huge spike over this week now because it's become a week-long phenomenon, let me tell you. And then you see a massive drop-off between now and Christmas. And maybe the week before Christmas, you start to see a little bit more ramping up. But it's last minute. You mean the people who've left buying their presents at the last minute? absolutely. It's last-minute purchasing decisions, most of which by that point aren't done at full price either. And if you've followed any of the big stocks this year in retail, you'll know that it's full price sales that ultimately are driving any kind of meaningful growth. So this whole stretch now for them is becoming really quite depressing because they're just having to revert to what most of the strategy has been trying to 
avoid yeah. for the rest of the year. It just seems like an act of self-harm to me. It really is. It really is. Yeah, and, and, and you know, this is why I, I brought up the point about the strong getting stronger, because you know, we, we obviously, in the sector focus, which is what this is, Always points at favourites and outsiders. And, you know, the favourites are guys that, that can actually manage the whole thing in, in a clever way. You well, know, the JD Sports, who people will buy full price from them anyway. Exactly. And, and, you know, they can, they can just perhaps push some stuff that yeah. struggling to get rid of. The, the, the favourites are people who can charge full price even on Black Friday itself and still be assured that someone will make a purchase somewhere. Um, and that really comes down to a handful of very, very strong brands and that is actually a key word i think over black friday because you can sort of hope for volume anytime throughout the year but if your customers aren't loyal to your brand then the ability to charge them full price at any point throughout the year is a is a challenge and that's what's been happening for some of the middle market mass retailers but for people like ted and mm, Historically super dry, not this year. Um, JD, JD Sports. JD Sports. Springs immediately. So my, you've mentioned it here, but but yeah, there is Jules. little price sensitivity on trainers, yeah, I promise you. Absolutely. Um, and similarly, you know, um, at the other end of the spectrum, the discounters will probably do well out of it as well because they don't get a disruptive force from anything that really goes on on the internet. So they can still hope to do well out of very price conscious consumers. More pain for department stores. Debenhams. I yeah. mean, that is Debenhams is almost on perma sale. Yeah, it just make, must make it a little bit worse. Yeah. Um, um, how do the the the, uh, the expert view, which is really interesting, actually, gives some sort of granular data on what sectors, what categories we can expect to do well on Black Friday. Yeah. Also mentions the the, the pure play online guys, Asos, Boohoo. How are they coping with it? It's interesting because I would say as the years go on and the markets become more saturated in that sort of online fast fashion, pure play, whatever kind of, you know, uh, descriptor you want to put on it, um, it's going to become harder and harder to pull out any kind of advantage because not only are those guys having to invest hugely at the moment in warehousing and logistics to keep up with each other, but their offerings are becoming less and less differentiated. You know, there's now a whole host of people selling rather sort of cheap garments um, and you know the the appeal to necessarily buy that stuff for 15 quid off whereas it's not actually that expensive throughout the rest of the year i don't know does it really get you excited it doesn't it certainly get doesn't me. get me excited phil me neither but but to point out the converse you know someone like ted who goes into two annual sales a year that's it they're suddenly offering you 20 percent off this weekend why not i'm there well your kids are i'm there too i like ted baker <laughs> there you um, go. am i right in thinking that a retailer like Nex, which always prides itself on not discounting before Boxing Day, doesn't <laughs> take part in this. Uh, well, I suspect it will take part in it. But, of course, someone like Next, who sits there proudly on its soapbox now and says, we don't discount, uh, rewind 18 months ago. They couldn't stop discounting. They couldn't get anyone to buy their product. It's really been the strategy this year that Lord Wilson's cracked down on promotions in exactly the same way that M&S has. It's the only thing that saved them this year. I made this point in a piece a couple of weeks ago as well. Um, so, yeah, to return to that sort of discounting... Um, atmosphere is a danger sign for them but if they can go the same way as someone like ted or jd and make it feel like more of a one-off for their customers then maybe those customers will feel inclined to take part Mm. so the question is can black friday save britain's retailers no i think the answer is a definitive no (laughs) no no um 
it might it might be good for Royal Mail, obviously, because uh, lo- lots of stuff will be will be being shipped at this point. Yeah. We've covered the results of Royal Mail this week. I think we, I think we might have touched upon them last week on this podcast. I'm not sure. I'm getting confused between podcasts. Now, I did another podcast for someone else. <laughs> Potentially um, not, but those results were pretty shocking. So they're going to need Black Friday to boost that parcels business back up to where it was. Yeah, it's a very competitive industry, though, as we're seeing, yeah. uh, especially with Amazon. Um, obviously, taking much greater control of its distribution than it than it had previously. On the opposite page of the results section, we have uh, EasyJet, which I know you've covered this week in your alpha Newsletter. Now, I wrote some very disparaging things about the airline business a couple of weeks back. We've had some horrible results uh, from the sector. Flybe obviously put itself up for sale. Dark Group's results, which are also in the magazine, which which we definitely did speak about on the podcast, were were pretty interesting. EasyJet, you're you're uh, you're a little bit more convinced by this story. Um, yeah, I, I think this this is an interesting company for me for, you know, from my point of view at the moment. I the sector is is pretty much hated. I mean, EasyJet shares are down by best part of a quarter year to date. Um, there are lots of issues going on in this market in terms of capacity. Um, a lot of a lot of other airlines have had problems. EasyJet itself has um, taken on uh, a loss making operation out of Berlin, a Berlin airport, which is diluting its its results but actually i i had a good pour over these uh, these figures uh, these full year figures yesterday and i think there's there's grounds for optimism with e- with easyjet in terms of what it's doing with its costs and its revenue generation particularly um what they call ancillary revenues so non aircraft ticket seat revenues uh, you know and that might involve uh, getting people to pay for better seats and things like that. But the, the big thing that really intrigues me is the um, this quite concerted push that they're going to make into try and make into the holiday market. Yeah, this is this is interesting. I always thought they they were quite active in holidays. I know it's been part of their their website for for a while, but 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 your view is that that it's kind of been half-hearted and they're perhaps looking at competition who who are in fact in some cases buying their capacity yeah. and thinking Hang on a minute. Yeah, I, I, I think by their own admission, this is something that they haven't exploited as much as they should have done. And they probably look at you know, a company like On The Beach, which is extremely profitable, um, very low overheads, very little capital invested, making good money, essentially by booking seats on their airlines on EasyJet Airlines and others, and booking hotel space. And EasyJet thinks, well, we're the, we're the people that actually ship the holiday makers to their destination. We've got all the IT in place. We've got a lot of customer intelligence. Let's have a go at taking a bigger slice of this market. I think there was something, there was something in the results saying that, um, I think out of 20 million passengers that they they carried i think fewer than half a million booked a hotel with them now i'm not sure what they're hoping to get that sort of percentage up to but that is sort of them saying look this is a pretty low percentage and the amount of incremental investment that um easyjet is going to have to put in to do this because a lot of the investments in place you know in terms of the selling model the it and so on um the if they can make a success of this it will take some time but you're looking at a business that has 
a lot of fixed costs. If you can get this incremental revenue, a profitable revenue, then you have have the potential to to move the profits along quite nicely. I mean, it's, it is an interesting industry. I mean, travel was. I mean, go back to the dot com boom. Travel was one of the areas that people did, you know, identify quite quickly as an area that could be significantly disrupted by the internet. Yeah, and you had the likes of Last Minute come along. Uh, eBookers, I think, was are they still going? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm either. For a um, while. But but nevertheless, you know, it hasn't it hasn't really happened I think at that, the pace that that you would have expected it to. I think that's in terms of the the booking process. You know, it's it's a, it's. The the barriers to entry in sort of classic travel agency business have come down. The internet has brought that down. You don't need lots of high street shops and lots of people. You need good, well-invested, efficient IT. And then somebody to build the relationships with the airlines and the hotels, and you're away. Um, clearly, you know, it's a question of who... Who holds all the cards in this? Is it the the middleman, the travel agent, or is it the the owners of the the assets that actually make up people's holidays, the planes and the hotels? And I would be inclined to believe that it's the latter. And this is where I think EasyJet is is trying to, to sort of cut out the middleman, and which is a you know which is a trend in itself um, across many. Uh, many aspects of our economy, cutting out the middleman, getting getting customers to go direct, offering them a better price, and you pocketing an extra bit of profit margin on the side, and I think this is what it's what it's all about. Um, I, I I think this is this is a. I'm not saying this is something that would solely make me very positive on EasyJet. I think it is one of a positive, one of many positive themes I can think developing in this um for the, for this business i mean there's other things one of which is capacity reduction obviously as other as well, other rivals go bust yeah i mean but they're putting a lot of capacity in you know they're put they've put in 10 percent capacity for the year just finished and they're going to put another 10 percent capacity in next year and i think this is one of the worries about dart who, who as i mentioned we have results in the mag this week that they put in a lot of capacity too yeah yeah easyjet actually looks quite disciplined against some of those <laughs> well, smaller operators but arguably those smaller operators are, are desperate right they're trying to they're trying to sell many more routes many more sort of obscure destinations but that's not always uh, you know onto a winner when your load factor isn't keeping pace yeah and and your yield you know mm. your your passenger yield, the the revenue per seat that that is key. You know when you've got a lot of fixed costs, you've got a fuel price that goes all over the place. Um, it's hard to get the economics of um, of flying planes right all the time, and it, you know it's a very volatile industry. But I think EasyJet doing some good things. They've the the, for the fleet as well. They are they are moving to more efficient planes they're ordering um airbus a321s which are cheaper per seat than their sort of core a319 now that's going to take some time but that can bring the cost per seat down as well and if they're working on this revenue ancillary revenue as well and they're being disciplined with their capacity and and also targeting that capacity on the right routes then you know you're looking at a share that's on nine times next year's earnings yielding five and a half on uh, uh, dividends that are covered twice and i just think given where it's come from it's these are not buy and hold stocks for sure but you know maybe this is this is something that's 
fallen quite a long way and is starting to get interesting again. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I've I've bought it, I've sold it, I've bought it, I've sold it. That's easy job for you, I think. I've travelled it, and I have to say, I prefer to travel it than some other airlines who we shall not mention right here, and who I most certainly would not buy a package <laughs> off. But there you go. Let's stick with the travel theme. Um, SSP has yeah. big news here. Mm. Uh, Kate Swan, yeah, she's off. Yeah, and uh, people might wonder if they're not familiar with that name, why SSP, which is not a necessarily that well-known company in itself I bet most people have eaten something that they yeah they definitely will have you know upper crust and all of those big brands that you see around the station and airports that's SSP but yeah Kate Swan was uh, obviously chief executive at WH Smith for 10 years up until 2013 so uh, she was credited when she was there for sort of really keeping the stationer afloat and sort of pushing it into travel which it now is thriving at arguably even though high streets you know it's a game of two halves Um, but obviously she's taken that travel now over to SSP and done a pretty decent job with it I have to say since flotation yeah I I heard her described this week as like one of the few like genuine management geniuses that that, that there are on the on the UK listed market Um, those are sure caps words not was it Shawcat? It was Shawcat. I can't remember where I read it. Thank you, Harry, yeah. for clarifying <laughs> that. But no, no, I mean, she, she genuinely, I mean, W.H. Smith, I mean, it's kind of yeah. miraculous what, uh, what was happening there, given the way that, you know, what she inherited and, and, and some of the trends that were, were afflicting that business. Yeah, I think she's just really talented at fighting on two fronts, which is all of W.H. Smith's story, really, which is like, how can we claw costs out of the business on one side and where are the areas for growth on the other? And she's really transformed... I think that business into what it still is today, which is pushing into travel, taking advantage of a lot of the same themes which underpin the case for SSP growth as well. Um, so her mark is still firmly on both companies, I would say. I'm just looking at that share price. That's that's a Kate Swan drop, isn't it? <laughs> Surely, uh, you've heard about SSP this week, haven't you? Yeah, Phil? Uh, it's uh, it's a decent business. Um, I actually, I actually prefer to have my money in W. H. Smith's travel <laughs> business than, than yeah, but you, SSP. But you can't just buy W. H. Smith's travel business. No, that's the problem. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I wonder if something will eventually happen at W. H. Smith to it'll spin off or <gasps> die, die oh, off. I wrote a feature about that. It must be seven years ago. It's just they're gonna they're gonna spin it out. It's yeah. gonna be how up. prophetic. But I think but pathetic. No, <laughs> no, I did not. I I looked at W. I've looked at W. H. Smith a couple of times actually over the last two or three months, and I think the value of the retail business, the travel retail business, is probably reflected in W. H. Smith's share price. Um, but I think it's a. I think if you look at its performance. I think WH Smith is a much more profitable travel business than SSP. Um, maybe because it's got more exposure to airports than than rail. Rail is a bit bit softer for SSP than than air. Um, and of course, obviously, with Kate Swan going, the the obvious question that's going to be asked is: Is she getting out at the top? Hmm. And but I you th- could have said that about WH Smith as well. You um, could. You could, but the share price for yesterday was pretty sharp um, for SSP. It's not; it's a it's a pretty big company, so you don't often get huge sort of swings either way. But you know, her departure it was front page news at the FT as well. So mm. the other thing as well is this is a very highly rated share, mm. and to keep the momentum going in a share like SSP, you need profit upgrades. And I think if you look at the the outlook statement. Um, there was certainly nothing nothing to suggest there in terms of the direction of sales or profit margins that was going to lead analysts to, to, to move their numbers higher. So I think 
that that also I think probably had some impact on the share price, even though Kate Swan's departure is the obvious obvious uh, conclusion to come to. Yeah, well, we're still saying buying the magazine, but I think it's one that we probably are qualified by. Um, it's a quality stock, and you're going to pay for it. You know, it's just one of those. From when we have covered it, it's been a fairly reliable performer. Um, and I totally take Phil's point, but I would also say historically it's not been a hugely over chatty kind of management team that's, you know, desperate to sort of um, get those upgrades going when it can and sort of fuel share price growth. It would prefer almost, I think, sometimes to sit on the numbers and then outperform at the re- at the time of release. Um, so a slightly muted outlook. I wouldn't necessarily say that's a huge sign of um, nervousness on that part. I would just say maybe it's it's reflective of their usual conservative kind of approach it's a fairly quiet company yeah you know you know what i mean when i say that Sorry, i think my only concern with this business and to an extent similar extent the wh smith business is that you're dealing with concessions Mm. now these concessions don't last forever yeah contracts and and eventually you know you have to renew them and you know you're looking at characteristics of the business here which look quite nice to a lot of lot of people probably want a slice of this so i think one of the key risks of a business like this is that when you come to renew a concession obviously if you're the incumbent you're in a good position the question is do the economics of the renewal Mm. get worse i mean essentially you're talking about outsourcing risk aren't you yeah in the same sort of bracket because it's that same you know uh, ultimately will they just have to undercut their competitor or will Will the sort of the concession the 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 company or the organisation that awards the concession say you're making too much money mm. out of this? A lot of these are on turnover based rents. So, so look, we're gonna we're gonna up up the take, mm. and that's that's something that you know you might want to consider if you're looking at these kind of companies. Yeah, but you have good operators there. I mean, the, the replacement Simon Smith, I think uh, his mm-hmm. name is, has been running the UK business, obviously. A- you know, very important uh, components of SSP as a whole. So, yeah. so it's in safe hands. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my experience with M&S teaches me <laughs> that that's not always the safest kind of bet to make. But, you know, it's it's the only facts that we have to work with at this particular moment. And he's done incredibly well with that business. Um, in those results, I think the UK and Ireland business was up 9% operating profit. So, yeah, all seems to be going well. And he seems to be qualified to uh, to do the job. And he's got some good assets to work with. Yeah, absolutely. He's inheriting a strong business, which yeah. is always an advantage. Yeah, absolutely. So let's head to healthcare. Yes. From food to healthcare. <laughs> Late night fast food to, to healthcare. Uh, so two things you've written this week which uh, caught my attention. Uh, Hutchinson China Meditech in the tip updates page. I can't pronounce it. They've had a bit of a problem here. <laughs> Frequentinib, I that think. Okay. <laughs> I, that might be wrong too. Um, yeah, they've been, uh, I mean, it's their it's their major kind of drug and it's a cancer drug and it's already been approved um, for some patients with a very specific kind of cancer and what they're essentially trying to do now in China is run additional clinical trials on it to extend its usage which is not unusual it's a very normal kind of trope in pharmaceuticals to do that um unfortunately this week uh one of those trials for non-small cell uh lung cancer failed in phase three it didn't reach what is called its sort of primary endpoint, which loosely translated means main purpose, um, which is that it didn't slow 
or make any sort of discernible effect on survival rates. Um, it did, however, meet several of its secondary endpoints. So things like safety, does it control the disease rather than cure it and things like this. And it did, it did meet a host of those secondary endpoints. Uh, but the market takes any clinical drug failure at this stage very badly. What was the, the response on the day? It was bad. The shares were down, I think... Oh, it was a while ago now, but about 18%, something mm. like that on the day. Uh, that was in early trading, I should say. I don't know what the close was um, off the top of my head. But yeah, I mean, it's not unusual. I mean, actually, on the same day, Astra had a drug failure as well. And, and that wasn't taken well either. So it doesn't actually sort of matter what size your company is or sort of how prolific you are or um, what you're essentially trialing. If it's important to your company and it fails in phase three as opposed to preclinical or phase one. Because you've pumped so much money into it to get to that point absolutely you've spent a lot of money in r&d and now you've spent a lot of money probably even on pre-commercialization if you're that sure it's going to work you're probably ramping up a sales force marketing materials you're probably starting to circulate with the regulators and even physicians maybe so you know to then see it all kind of collapse is uh, it's frustrating it's it's just a write-off basically yeah still positive on the company overall though overall yes because that drug as i say that was an extension of its use it wasn't it's kind of like sole bread and butter um, and it will still launch on the market um, I think next year is is mooted at the moment for its initial um, kind of cancer treatment so it's not been and gone but obviously what the market is reading into this is if it can't be extended into a sort of very similar kind of cancer how many other cancers could it actually affect? Is it going to be a single-use drug, which would obviously be very limiting in terms of, of revenues going forward? Mm, no, interesting. Um, actually, there's a, there's, an, there's, a, there's a positive number on that page uh, this week, uh, learning technologies. That's, that's really interesting. Mm. Another positive bit of news, for, for shareholders at least, BTG. Yeah. This is the lead news story. Now- this really took us by surprise. They only had results on something like the 8th of November, so we're talking, you know, by the time I was writing this, we were actually only talking about a week ago. Um, and yeah, they've received a takeover offer from a US company called Boston Scientific, although the actual offer has come from a newly incorporated subsidiary, effectively, which they've set up. Off on the way. Yeah. Um, so, but but the main buyer is Boston Scientific, which is a big US company. And uh, the to say the offer is generous, I think, is, um, is fair, actually. There was a bit of dispute between the analysts. I was going to say, not generous enough for new miss. No, not at all. Um, in fact, they're... they're sort of research on it was quite harshly worded and they think that a bidding war will emerge as a result although the board has already said it's going to unanimously recommend it and that they've received irrevocable undertakings from approximately a third of the shareholding base so if if a bidding war did break out we're going to have to talk about a minimum offer of 925 considering that the current offer is 840 and that's already a 51 percent premium to the 90-day moving average i would say that any potential kind of rival bid is going to have to be seriously punching i, I was gonna say i mean you know bidding wars sometimes good time to buy i mean you buy the uh, you know by the, the 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 possibility that that someone's going to cough up a bit more but we're saying hold here I mean, yeah because i'm not actually sure that a bidding war could work out. I mean, if if it works out, then obviously from a shareholder's point of view, that's great. You just you're earning more and more return. But I think in this case, if the bidding gets aggressive, then what could actually happen is that Boston Scientific walks away altogether. Mm, it's interesting. You know, BTG. You know where BTG came from. Yes, I do. Probably because I've talked about it ad nauseum. <laughs> it's the last remaining bit of the UK's industrial policy of the 1970s. It's, it's the 
NRDC. In fact, it goes back earlier than that, but it's the NRDC, and it came through the National Enterprise Board, mm. which was essentially the government's uh, VC wing. Yeah, it didn't really work out in the main, but... No, it's a funny old company. I mean, it's a big company, I should say. Um, but what it has attracted criticism for in the past is it's not particularly cutting-edge medicines. I, I remember it from years ago. It was, it it was varicose veins. Still is. Is that its big thing? Still, still is its main product, Varathena. Yeah, and they've had major problems with it because they failed to get the correct US uh, code for its insurance reimbursement. So the initial sales of that were completely decimated. Um, and it has now got what it calls interventional medicine, which includes some oncology drugs, which obviously is a buzzword still in the industry all these years later. Um and I think that actually this fed into Numis's kind of criticism of the offer was that it thinks that Boston has undervalued the potential of that interventional medicine sort of division. And others are saying, well, yeah, but interventional medicine, I mean, it's a drugs pipeline, so it's all theoretical anyway, as we've just discussed at Hutchison China, it could fail. And in the results that we covered two weeks ago, it wasn't interventional medicine that really pulled it out of the bag. It was the legacy pharma business that mm. surprised everyone. So to say that it undervalues something that isn't really... I mean, welcome to pharmaceuticals, but um, I think it's probably not very fair. If I was um, a shareholder in BD BTG, which I'm not for clarification purposes, I would vote in favour of it. I would take it and run. Yeah. Either way, it's nice to have a bit of good news mm. in, a, in a market which has been pretty horrific. Have you been keeping tabs on the market this week, Phil? It's been uh, a bit exciting. Yeah, I've sort of, you know, had my ear to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've written, we've written about obviously the big sell-off uh, in tech this week. Mark Robinson has has taken a look at that. We've actually talked to the secondary feature this week uh, is about some real horror show uh, companies over the years. Uh, it's our book club, which Tom Dines written, looking at BHS, Harriet's wincing <laughs> over there, Enron, everyone's wincing. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's been a, it's been a an extraordinary week uh, and we haven't even talked about politics no but they are in seven days if people need any kind of reminder <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like not talking about politics yeah well um, I mean yeah, quality is something that I think people are are gravitating towards in this market um, as well as gold which is the cover feature gold has had a had a good week whenever or month as, as everyone else has been having a bad few months um, quality Phil, this is your big thing. This is the subject of your book, and it's the subject of your column this week. Yeah. And also a, a subject dear to all the hearts, alcohol. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, mean, so I, like, I like to talk about good quality businesses. It's The, the struggle is to get these at, at good prices, but uh, had a good look under the bonnet at um, Diageo this week, and um, quite like what I see, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, we briefly spoke about it last week because they sold a portfolio of uh, lesser-known brands. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I, I looked at them. Goldschlager? Sambuca? Yeah, they, they sold... It's kind of thing we used to drink after uh, about 11 o'clock at night in, uh, they, <laughs> in the late 90s. Yeah. They, they, they're, they're getting rid of, of, of brands that they don't have a lot of faith in long-term. It doesn't fit their strategy of taking their products up market and there's this is obviously a big big theme in consumer facing industries now of premiumization people getting people to pay higher prices for higher quality products or perceived higher quality products well, it kind of kind of ties in what you were saying about about retailers who are going to do well from black friday mm -hmm. they're they premium or they're they are not necessarily like super premium but 
companies that are able to command whatever what they want to command for the the things they sell. Yeah, I mean, I think on the high street it's referred to something strange like upper upper echelon or upper aspirational lifestyle or something clunky and horrible and corporate like that. But you can kind of get the gist. It's uh, it's price points that sit around the sort of Ted Baker mark. So we're talking like maybe 100 quid for a jumper. Um, so it's not completely alienating in the sort of Burberry sense, but it's equally not going to be a 35 quid jumper from M&S. Yeah, so, so, so low price sensitivity. And that seems to be where, where Diageo is going. In in uh, in most of its, in certainly in developed markets, yeah, yeah. In in in, uh, in America, which is obviously the biggest biggest world market, biggest chunk of Diageo's profits, that's what they're trying to do. They need that's where they need to do a bit more work, actually. But underlying this, this is a business that's been on the up for the last two to three years now, and looks like there's there's more to, there's more to go. Um, I think this is a it's a very interesting alcohol is actually a very interesting market because of the development of craft products. And obviously we've seen in the UK here the, the development of things like craft gins um mm. and also craft whiskies. And the concern would be that for a big gigantic company like Diageo is it nimble enough to actually innovate and exploit these trends and I think if you have a good look at what's going on in Diageo, I think it clearly is. Um, certainly with its gin brands, its Tanqueray gin brand, um, it's doing extremely well with that. Tank- Tanqueray is an, is an extraordinary product. Tanqueray, and there's Tanqueray 10 as well. Um, but also Johnny Walker, um, in terms of premium blended scotches, they've got premium single malts. I know you like a Johnny Walker black. I do, Didn't actually. you drop one at the airport on the way back from I America? did, yeah. I dropped, <laughs> dropped a litre bottle of Johnny Walker black label. I was devastated. Jet lag, uh, was it? Yeah. Um, no, um, but it's not just it's not just the spirit side. They, they have a phenomenally strong uh, beer brand in Guinness as well. I mean, this Hop House Lager. Hop House uh, Lager is... Going great guns in in, in in the sort of British market. Mm. But generally speaking, what's going on is that the company's getting getting smarter with its sales. It's bringing new products, it's bringing new gins, new liqueurs. It's uh, had a new uh, bourbon whiskey in, in America. And what it's also doing is becoming more efficient, taking costs out and reinvesting that into basically to, into sales to, to try and drive sales there's still a bit of work to do here if you look at the major spirits companies Diageo in terms of sales growth actually is a laggard um, but it's it's trend in uh, underlying organic, organic sales growth is on is on the up its margins are on the up its cash generation is frankly superb and uh, the price that's the big question the price is uh, when I wrote the article, I've not looked at the price for the last day or so. You could pick these up for about just just under twenty two times next year's next twelve months earnings. Doesn't feel overly expensive. Well, for you, I mean, it it isn't, and it's certainly a lot cheaper than the likes of Brown Foreman and uh, Remy Quantro uh, are selling for. And this is a business that is phenomenally difficult to copy no one could start from scratch and uh, put together assets and brands like this and they're, they're, they're doing a good job there's still momentum in this in this company from what i can see and i think 
all all this is feeding through to much better financial performance in terms of margins, cash generation, and and you know growth. Mm. So I think the, these are very these are seen as very dependable earning streams. We have a, de- a supporting demographic in terms of wealthier populations in emerging markets who want to trade up to these these products and i think diageo is pretty well placed to to do well from that excellent no it's, it's a good piece of analysis a lot of analysis and i'm sure we'll be uh, seeing more quality uh, quality stocks identified in the uh, the weeks ahead anyway thank you phil and thank you harriet lots more in the magazine this week i've already run through a couple of the uh, the features uh gold uh we're looking at aim uh, gold miners in particular and uh, seeing if there's any uh, any value there which we think there is lots in the personal finance and fun section which they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow uh, lots of comments uh, two um, really interesting piece actually around uh, BT and uh, its management changes from Paul Jackson in our no free lunch column fair bit of news this week a big Aston Martin piece there which uh, we've talked about before on the podcast uh, and um, yeah I look at some of the outsourcing uh, companies and some of the problems that they continue to face and lots of results as well anyway thank you all for listening thank you again Harriet and Phil uh, we'll be back again next week but in the meantime get to the uh, news agent and pick up the magazine Ames Golden Nuggets sifting for the best value gold miners £4.90 uh, or get on the website and take advantage of that Black Friday uh, subscription offer see you next week planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.